Good morning. It's nice to be back with you again. I appreciate multiple weeks being, uh, being here and everyone's hospitality and graciousness. I talked to quite a few of you last week and this week between services or at different times, and some of you have asked, you know, how do we stay in touch with you? How do we ask you questions? How do we say things like we disagree with you but not in a public forum? Um, you can get a hold of me through skyjatani.com. You can find all kinds of stuff about me there, and you probably have no idea how to spell that. Google it, you'll figure it out. Um, use that little phone of yours. So that's one way you can stay in touch. In a couple weeks, uh, last night I mentioned that I haven't been to my own church since July because I've been here so frequently in so many other places. So I, I think they're getting suspicious that I'm cheating on them with another church. Uh, I'll be back with them in a few weeks in October, but then I'm gone again for a whole month in November. I'm going to South Africa uh, to teach for a little bit, and we decided that we were going to pull the kids out of school and we're all going to go together to South Africa, and we're going to go to India also because when you're in the neighborhood, you know, might as well stop by. Um, but I'm excited to go because I was in South Africa four years ago. I was in Cape Town, and I'm looking forward to taking my family there because I've traveled a lot. I've been a lot of different places, and Cape Town is just absolutely stunning, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. I can't wait to show my kids and my wife this place. When I was there last, I discovered that really the best way to appreciate the beauty of Cape Town is from the sea, from the South Atlantic Ocean, because from that perspective, you can see all of the layers of that city, the, the vistas, it's just beautiful. Along the coast, you see kind of the old colonial buildings, and then behind that, the more modern architecture and skyscrapers, and behind that, you have the rolling green hills and vineyards, lush and beautiful, and then behind all of it is this amazing canvas of Table Mountain, this amethyst-like plateau that just is a stunning backdrop to the whole city. And so when I was there four years ago, I was aware of Nelson Mandela's story, of course, before I went, but being there, I began to get a sense of how uh, agonizing his imprisonment must have been. Because for most of his time in prison, he was on Robben Island, which is just a few kilometers off the coast of Cape Town. And it has one of the best, most stunning views of the city. And so despite the horrible conditions in which he lived there and, and working in a rock quarry every day in horrible heat and dust, and despite occupying a little tiny prison cell, barely big enough for him to lie down in, what struck me was his view, that he could see the beauty of Cape Town, his home, but he couldn't actually touch it. He couldn't reach it. And for that reason, Robben Island has a, a unique kind of torture that few other prisons have, maybe Alcatraz or Devil's Island, but the ability to see freedom but not actually engage it, not access it. I begin with that because for me, Robben Island became a, a metaphor for the church. We who are the people of Christ, who have been redeemed by him, who are the church, we've been given a glimpse of freedom. In the pages of Scripture, in the example of Christ in the early church, we have this foretaste of the world that is to come, a world that is perfect and beautiful, full of order and abundance and free of disease and death and sin and evil and all those things, but yet we occupy a world that seems to have none of that, a place that is still broken and cursed and full of sin and evil and injustice. So like Mandela on Robben Island, we occupy this one world that is kind of awful, but we have this vision, we see this other world, but between our world and that world is the cold waters of reality, the inability to actually grasp it. 
So the question then we have as a church is what posture will we take toward the world we currently occupy? In light of the one that we know is to come, how will we live here and now in the prison of this world? That's what I want to talk about as we wrap up this series on a church to die for. How do we think about kind of on a higher altitude the way individually and collectively as the church of Jesus Christ we should be engaging this world? To do that, we're going to do something a little unconventional. First of all, we're going to cover about 100 years of American church history and we're going to cover the entire Bible. We'll get out for lunch, I promise. So as I've thought about this question over the years and as I travel and speak, I've come to realize that most churches tend to fall into one of two paradigms of how they think about or how they actually posture themselves toward the world. So we're going to look at those two paradigms, which both come from the Old Testament, and then I want to turn and talk about the paradigm that Jesus gives us in the New Testament, a different way of thinking about how to occupy this world in light of the one to come. So we need to go back into the Old Testament for the first two, and I want to look at two metaphors from the Old Testament that kind of describe how a lot of the American church, frankly, has thought of itself over the last hundred years, different postures it's taken. Last week, we got into this a little bit when we looked at the story of the Exodus. And if you recall, and if you know your Old Testament history, God's people are slaves in Egypt. They're persecuted, they're beaten. They eventually are called out from that land. God delivers them through Moses, and they are brought out into the wilderness. And repeatedly in the Exodus story, God tells his people to be separate, to be distinct, to be different. You're not going to be like the Egyptians. You're not going to go back into that pagan land. You're not going to be like the other nations around you. You are to be distinct, separate physically, morally, culturally, utterly different. And for some churches to this day, and quite a few earlier in the 20th century, that was the primary way Christians thought about their cultural engagement. It was actually a form of cultural disengagement. It was an exodus model. It essentially said that the world is beyond repair. It's a pagan, awful, dark place. And the best thing we can do as God's people is separate ourselves from it, to be untainted by it. In the early 20th century, there were, when this kind of vision of church cultural disengagement was, was heavily advocated, there were a couple things going on that fueled it. In the early 20th century, there were some relatively new ideas that were bombarding the culture that freaked a lot of Christians out. You know what some of them were. Ideas like biological evolution, ideas like psychology, ideas like anti-supernaturalism, the belief that miracles and supernatural things don't exist, um, some you may not be aware of, ideas like higher criticism of the scriptures, meaning maybe the Bible really can't be taken seriously. So all these ideas are percolating in the culture, and Christians started getting anxious about it. And historians look back to one particular event as being the turning point. That was the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925. You guys know your history. You remember that there was this school teacher in Tennessee who began teaching evolution to his students, and he was actually put on trial. And it kind of became a proxy war for what was going on in the culture. Conservative theological Christians on one side and more progressive uh, secular-minded people on the other. And in the end, the Christian arguments lost in court. And so in response to that, a lot of Christian leaders came out and said, you know what, the culture is just going downhill. 
It's all over. The best thing we can do is hope that Jesus is going to return soon and protect ourselves and our children, our families, and our communities from the tainting, the the bad things that are going on in the culture. And it was really around that time that a lot of Christians took this exodus approach to say, we're just going to kind of create a safe little enclave for ourselves. We're not going to engage in politics. We're not going to engage in law. We're not going to engage in the arts, in the media, in higher ed. We're just going to protect ourselves. And it was in this season that a whole lot of what we now take for granted emerged. What I mean by that is the, uh, the parallel Christian subculture. That's sort of a facsimile of the secular culture. We just slap a Jesus fish on it, right? So we created our own uh, stores, our own publishing houses, our own magazines and newspapers, our own schools and universities. And it, it became a way of being completely safe and encased and enclosed in this evangelical, in some cases fundamentalist culture, and distinct and separate from the secular culture around us. It was that time where Christians said things like, you don't drink or chew or date girls that do. Right? You just separate, don't engage, protect yourself, your family, Jesus will come back soon and rescue us out of here. That kind of posture, there were some exceptions, but it remained largely dominant until the 1970s. When conservative Christians, and when I say that I mean theologically conservative Christians, came roaring back into the public square. 1976, Newsweek magazine actually on a cover story declared it the year of the evangelicals. Because it seemed like these very engaged, culturally-minded Christians had come out of nowhere to re-engage in politics, business, the arts, the culture. A new model had emerged, a new vision of Christian cultural engagement at that time, which was predicated on a, a different Old Testament story, not the Exodus, but the Exile. So going back to the Old Testament again, if you know your history, some centuries after the Exodus... God's people found themselves once again living in a pagan land. In this case, it was Babylon. God's people had been unfaithful to him, and he kept warning them over and over and over again. And finally, he allowed the Babylonian army to sweep into Israel and destroy it. They destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and they took the Israelites away as uh, exiles into Babylon. So here they are again, not unlike Egypt. They weren't slaves this time, but they were exiles, surrounded by a pagan culture, and the big question became, how do we live outside our land, outside our temple, outside our traditions? And through the prophet Jeremiah, God gave his his people a very practical command, an instruction. It's a verse that gets thrown around a lot these days, Jeremiah 29.7. The Lord says to his people, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, you're stuck here. Make lemonade out of lemons. Make the best of it that you can, because if it goes well for Babylon, it'll go well for you. And and this became a lot of the way Christians began to think, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, since the 1970s about cultural engagement. The church should engage the culture because if we can make it go well for the culture around us, it'll go well for us. There are a couple of key things that happened that brought Christians back into the public square at that time, and some of them you're probably well aware of. The Supreme Court rules to legalize abortion in Roe v. Wade. 
The LGBT community comes out of the proverbial closet to engage the culture. Harvey Milk becomes the first openly gay public official in the country. And these things were symbolic, but they were important. Because what it signaled to Christians was that the cultural and sexual revolution of the 1960s was not just a phase. It wasn't just a fad. That those changes were now being codified into our laws and into our culture. And frankly, a lot of Christians flipped out about it. They began to realize, "Uh uh-oh, we disengaged the culture back in the 1920s. We disengaged from Ivy League schools. We disengaged from politics, from Washington, from Hollywood, from the arts. And Jesus hasn't come back yet. And because we've disengaged, look at where the culture's going. A lot of them felt like the United States had slipped off its Judeo-Christian moorings and was heading in a bad direction. And so a lot of Christians decide, we, we need to re-engage. We're exiles here. We don't like it here. We don't want to be here, but this is where we are, and we better make the most of it. And if we re-engage, then maybe we can protect ourselves from some of these changes. And so the model of exile became the dominant view. But here's what I want you to understand. There was a dramatic shift in the 1970s, 1980s from an exodus disengagement to an exile engagement approach. It was a difference in tactic, but it wasn't ultimately a difference in vision. James Davidson Hunter, who's a Christian who wrote a really interesting book called To Change the World, describes what has fueled so much Christian cultural engagement in the 20th century. This is what he summarized. The rhetoric of world changing originates from a profound angst that the world is changing for the worse and that we must act urgently. There's a sense of panic that things are falling apart, that if we don't respond now, we're going to lose what we cherish the most. What animates this talk is a desperation to hold on to something when the world no longer makes sense. You see, the shift from... Exodus to exile was driven primarily by fear. The world's changing and it's not changing in a good way. Therefore, we've got to engage it. Why? To protect ourselves, to protect our churches, to protect our institutions and our families and our values and our way of life. It was really motivated by fear. Just as so many advocates earlier in the 20th century were advocating separation, exodus from the culture, for self-preservation out of fear. The problem with this, as Henry Nouwen says, is that fear only engenders fear. It never gives birth to love. When we're primarily postured as a church and a community to engage it because we're afraid that if we don't, it's going to go bad for us, People end up picking up on that vibe. They recognize that these Christians, they're not really primarily interested in helping us or serving us or loving us or the common good. What they're interested in is protecting themselves and their way of life and their institutions. That Jeremiah 29.7 verse I mentioned earlier from the exile story is an important one. And we have to look at it more carefully. As I said, it's become a very popular verse, and I see it everywhere. I joke that I fully expected an NFL game to see somebody holding up Jeremiah 29.7 at some point because it's becoming like a mantra for this younger generation of Christians. But I think the verse is problematic. Remember, 
It says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What's the motivation for engaging and seeking the welfare of the city? Ultimately, God has given this command to his Old Testament people because he wants them to be preserved as a people for the eventual coming of the Messiah. But they're called to engage and seek the welfare of Babylon, not because they love the Babylonians, not because they're called to serve the Babylonians, but to protect themselves. If it goes well for Babylon, it's going to go well for you. And as I see this verse brought up over and over and over again in Christian circles about, well, we need to engage our communities and we need to engage our culture and we need to engage this, engage that, but it's ultimately out of self-interest, I'm going, wait a minute. That may have been appropriate in the Old Testament for God's people at that time. It certainly was, but aren't we called to some higher motivation than self-interest? This is a sub-Christian motivation for cultural engagement at best. And I would argue a non-Christian motivation for cultural engagement at worst. Unfortunately, there are a lot of voices that are calling us in that direction. A lot of people who speak claiming the name of Christ, claiming the identity as Christian, who are trying to motivate us to engage our world out of fear. They tell us who to be afraid of, who the enemy is, what the fight is, and who has to be defeated in order for us to succeed. And if someone is claiming the name of Christ and leading you out of fear, the spirit of Christ is not present. Because we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of freedom and power. And where the fears of God's people are stoked over time, the loving glow of Christian love cannot long endure. And unfortunately, for decades, that has been the perception of the church, that we are a fearful people driven out of self-preservation to engage the culture to make sure it goes the way we want it to go for our sake. And that has yielded bitter, rotten fruit. Since the 1970s, the Gallup organization has been polling Americans on a bazillion different issues, but one of them has been the perception of the church. In 1977, their polling showed that 66% of Americans said that they had a strong or high confidence in the church. 66%. Their most recent poll found it was only now 44%. And among those under the age of 30, it's far, far lower. Robert uh, Putnam and David Campbell poured over all the research, all the data about perceptions of Christian faith, perceptions of the church, and they were particularly interested in why are so many young adults abandoning the church? The statistics are off the charts on the number of folks raised and grown up in the church who end up leaving it today. And here's what they concluded about why we're seeing this rapid uptick. They said the data points to a rich irony about the emergence of culturally engaged Christianity. Its founders intended to bolster religion's place in the public square, and in a sense, they've succeeded. Yet at the same time, the movement has pushed a growing share of the population to opt out of religion altogether. When the perception is we're engaging our communities and engaging our culture out of self-interest and out of fear, it ends up driving people away from faith in Christ rather than welcoming them to it. Okay, so I've just hit you with a whole lot of bad news. What's the alternative? 
If we're not supposed to adopt an exodus model of complete disengagement from the culture, and if we're not called to an exile engagement of dominating the culture out of self-interest, then what are we supposed to do? Well, we need to remember, we are not a people of the old covenant. We are not a people of exodus. We are not a people of exile. We are a people of the new covenant. We are the people of Christ. And he presents to us a completely different model for how to think about our place in this world. Before I get to that, let's go back to Robben Island. When Mandela was there, he coped with the gap between his present circumstances and his vision of Cape Town in an interesting way. He ended up slowly cultivating enough trust with the guards and the warden at the prison that they finally agreed to give him a small patch of the prison yard where he was allowed to cultivate a garden. He started collecting seeds from around the island, sometimes in seagull manure or seeds that had washed up in plants along the rocky coastline, and he began to grow vegetables and flowers and fruit in that little patch of the prison yard. He said that this little garden gave him a sense of hope and of peace, and he said it was a small taste of freedom. It's, it's like Mandela was able to reach across that seven kilometers of cold water and reach into Cape Town and grab a small piece of the beauty and the order and the abundance of that place and plant it in that arid, horrible environment of the prison at Robben Island and give himself and those around him a little glimpse of freedom. For me, that speaks beautifully of what we have in the New Testament of what we see in Jesus and what we get through the incarnation. The incarnation is important because it's different than exodus and exile. When Jesus comes to our world, he does so in a way which presents a totally different model of thinking about our place in the world, a model that's then replicated by the early Christians in the book of Acts and has continued to be replicated by Christians throughout the ages. See, what Jesus shows us is that our primary posture toward this world is not one of separation like exodus, neither is it one ultimately of domination like exile, but what we're called to is cultivation. We are called to take whatever small patch of this world that God has given us and there cultivate the order and the beauty and the abundance of the kingdom of God in our midst to give others and ourselves a taste of hope and peace and freedom. And this is exactly what you see Jesus doing. The incarnation differs from exodus and exile in many ways, but I want to highlight just three and how they apply to our thinking about the church. First, and I think perhaps most critically, is this. Unlike exodus and exile, incarnation is always a choice. Think about it. Exodus. God's people find themselves slaves in Egypt. They didn't want to be there. They didn't choose to be there. They were just there. And so their solution, God's help, is to get out of there, separate. Exile. God's people didn't choose to be exiles in in, uh, Babylon. They were carried away against their will, and they find themselves in this pagan land. What are we going to do? Let's make the best of it. Seek the welfare of the city so that it goes well for us. Exodus and exile are just responses to lousy circumstances. Incarnation is different. 
We're told in Philippians 2 that Jesus chose. He chose to empty himself and take on the form of a servant. He chose to come and to dwell among us. He chose this earth to dwell with us and to share our sufferings and our struggles. And ultimately, he chose to give himself up. Incarnation was a choice. What does that mean for us as people of the incarnation, as people who belong to Christ? Think about the messages that our culture has tended to hear from the church. They either hear us reminisce about the past, how good it used to be in those former times when everybody went to church and everyone believed the Bible and everyone affirmed Christ and everyone lived by Christian morals and values and we paint the rosy picture of some black and white leave it to beaver kind of past that we idealize and how rotten things are today. Or the world tends to hear us romanticize about the future. How great it's going to be one day when Christ returns, when everything's made right, or when we can get off this rock and back to where we belong in heaven, or when so-and-so is out of office, how good it's going to be one day. It's always about the future or it's about the past, but what if as the church of Jesus Christ, we came to choose this time and this place as the day of salvation and the object of God's redemption, that we actually want to be here as Jesus wanted and chose to be among us? What would it look like if Christ Church here in Lake Forest or Lake County had a posture of saying, we want to be here. We want to be in this culture that's broken and messed up. We want to be in this community that is really lost because this is the place where God has called us to be and where we are meant to cultivate a vision of his kingdom. You know, you may be thinking right now, well, Jesus chose to be incarnate and he chose to come and dwell among us, but I didn't choose this place. I didn't choose this time to be born into. That's true. Nelson Mandela did not choose to be a prisoner of the state for 27 years, and yet when you read the accounts of how he handled himself in prison, it's really remarkable. Other prisoners commented that when guards would come to take him somewhere, that Mandela walked with such strength and with such dignity and held his head up so high, it looked as if he was actually leading the guards and they were his honor guard rather than prison guards. It was like he chose to be there, like he wanted to be there. Of course, he didn't. But he came to embrace his circumstances and it transformed the prison. He began to inspire other inmates to use this time to develop your soul for what is to come. What if we chose this time and this place and carried ourselves out into the culture with a posture of saying we want to be here, not we just can't wait to get out of here. Jacques Philippe wrote a little book some years ago called Interior Freedom. And he talks about how true freedom comes when we learn to choose that which we did not choose. When we choose to embrace the circumstances that we don't want, when we choose them, we find the freedom to overcome them. We didn't choose this time in this place, but we can choose it now. We can embrace the communities where God has us. 
And only in that posture will we then be able to love the communities where he has called us. So that's the first difference. Incarnation is always a choice. Here's the second. Unlike exodus and exile, incarnation is always for the sake of others. Exodus was about separating from the Egyptians to preserve our people. And the way it was practiced and still is practiced in many churches today is, hey, don't engage the culture, don't be a part of them, preserve your distinctiveness, be completely separate, don't touch, don't be tainted. It's about self-preservation. Exile, same way, seek the welfare of the city so it may go well with you. It's about engaging for my sake. But Jesus came and said that the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. Paul said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean? What he means is that as long as I am here, as long as I am living in this world, my mission is the same as Christ's. It is to serve those to whom he has sent me. Incarnation is for the sake of the other, not ourselves. How different would it be if Christians in this culture, if your church in this community was seen primarily not as being interested in itself or growing its institutional footprint or expanding its programs or bettering its positions and its values, but if it truly existed to bless and serve those outside this place, including those who will never set foot in this place, how different would that church be? I have a friend in Portland, Oregon, who leads a church called Imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. Apparently, it's a cool, hip thing to do, name your church with Latin words nowadays. Rick's a great guy, though. His name's Rick McKinley, and I interviewed him a number of years ago because I was just amazed to discover that people from his church were embedded all over the city of Portland. They were volunteering and serving in every school in the city. They were involved in, in every nonprofit organization and every other church in the city I was discovering they were participating in, in government organizations. And I'm like, what? I don't get it. What's going on? And Rick said, well, it's partly because of our unofficial motto around here. He said, the staff all, all hears him say this all the time, no logo, no ego. What he means by that is, if our church logo doesn't have to be associated with the work that's being done, then a whole lot more work's going to get done that God cares about. And so when people invariably express a desire in the church, they come up to a staff member and they say, hey, we really, we think we should start a ministry to serve the homeless, or we think we should start a ministry for this, or we should start a ministry for that. Rick has trained all of his pastoral leaders to give them the same response. They're all told no, because we're not going to start anything that someone else is already doing. Instead, what we're going to do is connect you to that other ministry or that other church or that other, other agency or that other program that's already doing it. And we're only going to start stuff that no one else is doing or no one else is reaching. And as a result, over the past 10, 12, 15 years, people from Imago Dei have been seated all over the city of Portland in Christian and non-Christian organizations, serving others in a way which is self-sacrificing and not about benefiting just their church. And it's transformed that city. I wish I had time to get into the stories. In one of the most secular post-Christian cities in America. But it happens when we recognize that an incarnational posture is not about us. It's about them. 
and giving our lives away for others. When Mandela cultivated that little garden, he started giving away the vegetables and the fruit to the other inmates. They incorporated it into the kitchen and cooking at the prison and people benefited from it. But he also started giving away the fruit and vegetables and flowers to the guards. And it became a conduit through which he got to know many of the guards well and their families and built trust. He even served those who were opposed to him. That's what we're called to do. Serve others. Third and finally, both exodus and exile were primarily concerned with survival. Let's just get through this. Let's just survive Babylon. Let's just get out of Egypt. Let's just make sure that we can get by for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 70, 80 years. The incarnation was different. Jesus didn't come and take on flesh and dwell among us just to help us get by. He said that he came that we may have life and have it in abundance. The incarnation is not about survival. It's about flourishing. The full expression of all that life is supposed to be. When Jesus goes to a wedding and they run out of wine, he doesn't just get them a little bit to get by. He creates the best wine they've ever tasted and he produces it in abundance. When people run out of food at lunchtime, he doesn't make sure everyone has a happy meal, right? He multiplies the fish and the loaves to make sure that everyone had an abundance to eat to the point where there were basketfuls of leftovers. You see this in the early church as well. It wasn't just, oh, well, we're going to get by until Jesus comes back. No, they brought flourishing. There was healing There was reconciliation. They were breaking down social barriers between men and women, Jews and Gentiles. And everyone had more than enough because there was sharing, there was generosity, there was flourishing. You know, so many Christians in our culture today and so many churches have this attitude of we're just going to hunker down and get through this terrible world until Jesus calls us home. Well, thank God Jesus didn't have that posture. Everywhere he went, he brought flourishing. He made sure people experienced the fullness and the abundance of God's kingdom. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the poor have the good news of the gospel preached to them. He brought life in its fullest. What does that mean for us? It means we're not just interested in getting by in this community means our posture is that we should care about our communities to the point where we want to see the very best for them in every area. Not just that they reconnect with their creator through the proclamation of the gospel, which is vitally important, but that they experience the fullness of life in all of its forms, which means that every sector that God has called us into, government, education, healthcare, the marketplace, the home, the neighborhood, the social sector, the media, the arts, all of it should be brought to its foolish flourishing through the presence of God's people and his spirit in them everywhere they go. That means releasing the greatest gift that God has given this world, which is his spirit-filled people out into the community rather than keeping them occupied within the institutional boundaries of the church. Incarnation is not interested in survival, it's interested in flourishing. When Jesus came, he reached forward into the future. 
He reached forward into the fullness of the kingdom of God and he yanked pieces of that future kingdom into the present and showed it to others. He brought the beauty of the kingdom and the order of the kingdom and the flourishing and abundance of the kingdom for all to see. He gave them a glimpse. Mandela grabbed a piece of Cape Town and brought it into that prison and cultivated it there. The order, the beauty, the abundance. And that's what we are called to do as well. We're called to choose the place where God has us, to serve there for the sake of others, and to bring flourishing, to reach forward into the future, grab a piece of the coming kingdom, and cultivate it in our midst. When we do that, we will be a church to die for. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with so much. Above all, you have made us your children through the redemption of Christ and sealed us with your Holy Spirit. I pray for my sisters and brothers here that by the Spirit of Christ, you would release them from their fear and give them the strength to embrace the place where you have called them, to serve those around them, and unleash their gifts wherever they are during the week to reveal your kingdom in all of its forms so that those around us might see the light of the gospel, that they might find strength in the weariness of this world, that they might be filled with the hope of the world to come, and that they too might become agents of your kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen.